welcome to the Thought Leader's Voice. I'm Rachel Kinsella, editor at iResearch Services and your host today. I'm delighted to be joined today as we celebrate International Women's Day and Women's History Month by Dr. Parvis Khan, Global Research and Insight Director at Pearson Education. Dr. Khan, a warm welcome. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. Um, if I may, uh, I'd like to give some words of introduction about Dr. Khan and uh, her vast experience in, in this area. Uh, Dr. Khan has over 20 years under her belt as an insight leader, with an impressive track record of transforming research functions into insight powerhouses. I love that. With a passion for bringing data to life, team performance and engaging with stakeholders, she's known for creating the insights needed to drive business growth, which is right up our street here at iResearch. At Pearson, in her current role, the world's largest education technology company, she leads research to drive and support product innovation across core markets. They're across the UK, Europe, Asia Pacific and North Africa, helping the company to continually innovate and grow by unlocking the right insights needed to find winning solutions. Prior to Pearson, Dr. Khan headed up the research and insights function at a global digital first insurance company devising a new strategy to maximize customer market and competitor data to drive up customer acquisition, retention, and lifetime value. Her research was instrumental in the development and success of a number of new digital insurance products. She's also run her own research consultancy for six years, successfully doubling revenue by the second year. So after these two very busy decades developing research teams, she still makes time to give back by mentoring the next generation of female research leaders through the 30% Club and Women in Research. Very much look forward to discussing that in more detail with you later, Dr. Khan. That'd be great. So our topic today is EdTech in 2021 and beyond, current and future trends. The COVID-19 pandemic has transformed teaching and created a rapid and necessary move to adopt digital learning. 2020 also presented us with the unique challenges of hybrid learning and two of the many challenges faculties face currently are student engagement and digital collaboration. One significant development in educational technology in this area that's certainly come to the fore in, in recent months is the use of artificial intelligence. And we can only see innovation in this area continuing and accelerating. Dr. Khan, do you believe that AI is now the biggest thing in the EdTech space? I do, and thank you for that introduction, um, both to you know, my personal bio and to recent events in terms of online learning. I mean, it's been a phenomenal time. COVID-19 was, in many ways, the black swan event that really left the industry thinking it's tech or die, basically. So it's really been a catalyst to accelerate all sorts of innovations and artificial intelligence is one of them. And it's an area I'm particularly interested in. Um, in terms of it being the big thing, well, here's the thing, you know, artificial intelligence offers consumers of learning a level of personalization, engagement and flexibility that is just not possible without the powers of AI computing. And it offers training providers like Pearson 
the ability to scale operations, to reduce costs, to improve learning experiences and reach a far wider and larger customer base that again, just would not be possible without AI computing. So that's why it's the in thing. And that's why so many edtech companies are innovating in this particular area. So let me give you some examples, particularly in the context of our recent experience with um, the lockdown and the disruption that's caused to learning. You know, in the near future, and you know, and I'm talking about a couple of years away, there's no reason why a student will ever need to miss any part of their schooling, whether that's due to the exceptional, like a natural disaster or a pandemic, or say they've just had a sport injury and they're recuperating at home. That's because learning will be available anytime, anywhere, and anyhow. In the event of not being able to get to school, every student will not only be able to tune into live streaming of lessons and join their classmates, but AI technology will also enable those students to have their own online adaptive learning platforms. These platforms will have an intimate knowledge of their learning needs and will have assignments ready for them to complete outside of the classroom at home. And we are already using AI algorithms in the classroom um, in a number of schools across the US and the UK to help teachers tailor learning programs to meet each student's individual learning. And you know what, as the infrastructure costs come down, particularly given cloud computing, this type of technology is going to be rolled out much more widely and you know, get to that sort of mass market level. Um, and there's another thing, you know, say, for example, they're away from school and they can't access their teachers. No problem. You know, they'll have a virtual tutor, an AI tutor on hand that's going to help explain things to them. Now, ask any parent who struggled to help their teenager with algebra and how tough that can be. I mean, I've got two teenagers and I struggle. They're going to be really super excited about the potential of AI to support their children when they're struggling at home with homework or even with a test that's coming up. Now, on the issue of tests and exams, say in the future, a student's got a big exam coming up and they can't get to their school or they can't get to the test centre, say, because we've got another lockdown. That's not going to be a problem because their school will be able to offer them online remote proctoring or online invigilation using face recognition, so biometric technologies on their screens, they can use it on their smartphone to authenticate who they are so that they can take their exam wherever they are. So you could say, you know, that AI has the power to become a great equalizer in education by, you know, helping more students with learning than is possible without that technology. Yes, it goes far beyond personalization and opening up new geographical reach um, to this adaptive process where uh, they're able to take on board students particular um, learning needs um, and that's that's got to be a good thing. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm super excited about the future. And how do you feel that works in a higher education space? Mm. Similarly, I mean, they're, they're already working with a number of adaptive learning platforms. Um, and we've got a few. We've got things like Revel, which is um, a very immersive technology. I mean, there's 
virtual reality on there, augmented reality, where students, if they can't get to college, they can learn about things at home and use simulations. Um, you know, so they have to take a trip to Egypt. Well, they can literally do that from their bedroom um, and learn about all sorts of facts that way. Um, so in many ways, I'd say universities are ahead of the game just because you know they've got slightly more resources you know at the end of the day most of us pay to go to university so they've got that capital to build whilst education is still primarily state funded so we've got to like work with governments in different countries to encourage them to adopt this type of technology in their school and pay for it really really interesting landscape and it's it obviously the, the pandemic has accelerated uh, everything to to get it to this stage but the the potential uh you can see is is endless and i think harnessing that technology and the and those abilities is is a very exciting opportunity absolutely yeah and do you feel that there's also the the other aspect of ai where it can it can really help um educators and students to home in on the the, the quality um content and learning materials that that they need and and curate uh what's appropriate for their for their learning and development absolutely you know i i wrote about this recently i mean i think focus is really the new currency in the current education landscape what do i mean by that well, we are literally drowning in information because we live in a hyper-connected digital world. You know, we've got access to so much stuff, so much content. If you do a Google search these days for learning something, you'll, you'll get a million search results to your query. You know, we're moving in many ways from an information age to an age of overwhelm. And that's not fun. You know, most of us are time poor and we want to get information we need and develop the understanding we need and gain the mastery we need as quickly as possible, don't we? That's what most of us want to do. So the future is all about smarter curation of all that learning content out there, most of which is freely available, in fact. Now, AI computing opens possibilities for taking curation to new heights. Um, what are the examples, you know, of some of the innovations we should expect to see emerging over the next few years? Well, it's going to be things like this. For example, news reading apps. We're going to see news reading apps, but ones that are focused on education. So you'll have the opportunity where learning will be primarily consumed on the go on mobile devices which focuses on surfacing personalised learning bites tailored to individual learner needs. Um, AI will also be used in delivering new features and new functionalities like auto-generated videos on specific subjects, script extra, um, extraction from media, again, for specific subjects that you might want to know more about, auto-translation, you know, um, and other services that, in many ways, repurpose learning content for the fast-paced digital world that we all live in now. Fantastic. Um, and of course, uh, underpinning all of that has got to be the right data 
um, the quality of data, um, timeliness, um, and, and carefully curated. Um, obviously, we're uh, a far more data-driven world uh, out of necessity um, in, in this digital age. Um, how do you see the, the right balance being achieved between um, the, the strife for, for data um, and the more qualitative aspects uh, and the, the, the people and the, the perspective mm. side? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I mean, we have become obsessed with being data driven. You know, they say data is the new oil and it is, and that's absolutely true. But I believe being data driven shouldn't be the final goal. The, the final goal is being insights driven. And an insight isn't something you can mine. You know, great skills in SQL or Python isn't gonna help you here. Insights have to be crafted. And that involves taking data points along with your own observations, reflections, qualitative judgments, your own experience to, ex, ex, you know, to sort of understand and, and explain why something is happening the way it is. And my experience from having worked in a number of companies over the past two decades is that, you know, we've become better at mining the data and producing tons and tons of metrics. But we've become poorer, I feel, at deeply analysing what all that data really means. Why? Well, the trouble is that companies, you know, they invest so heavily in data applications and big data infrastructure projects that sometimes they lose sight of the skills needed to actually analyse the data. You know, getting from metrics to insight is a real challenge. And that's where having the right skill set in your team um, is, is critical. Like, like you pointed out, it's about the people. And I think every in-house analytics team needs researchers you know, and social scientists. You know, these are people who can serve as data translators and storytellers, because these folks are trained in inductive and deductive reasoning and they can really help you explain things better and they can also help you identify blind spots and bring in fresh perspectives so i'm really into having that real balance of different types of skills in my team absolutely i think as you pointed out insight is everything and it's far more than than just uh, data um, and it's bringing that to life uh, which is your, your area of uh, specialism right, and uh, yep. something that we're very passionate about as well. Um, connected with that and also connected with the, the education sector, obviously we're playing catch up in a number of areas uh, because of the pandemic um, in developing new tech, in, in adopting that and, and rolling it out across education settings, uh, across businesses. Um, and uh, there's a, a lot of the same people uh, quite over, overwhelmed, as you mentioned, not only with the, the data and the, uh, uh, the different information coming through, but, but with workloads. Um, do you see technology as um, taking a, a pivotal role in, in being able to support uh, in these areas where, where workloads are are just becoming yes particularly for educators absolutely for teachers I mean poor teachers I mean they literally haven't had a break for two years with with all the school closed closures and um, now they've got this huge challenge of helping a whole generation of young people catch up with mislearning 
and they already have excessive workloads. We, we know that um, from previous research, something like 40% of teachers in the UK are planning, were planning before COVID. I mean, that this might increase, but we're planning to quit the profession by 2024 due to unbearable workloads um, and poor work-life balance. So we do need to look at how do we address this and what the solution might be like. And at Pearson, we believe you know, the solution lies with labour-saving technologies, which can automate a lot of the work teachers do. Now, a recent McKinsey study found that among primary and secondary school teachers, only 49% of their time is spent teaching students. Only 49% of their time is spent teaching students. The rest of their time, is spent preparing for lessons, marking homework and tests, attending meetings and a host of ad administrative tasks. Now, according to McKinsey, up to 40% of all those other tasks could be automated with technology, freeing teachers to do what they're trained to do, and that's teach. So one area where we've been working um, on is auto-marking of assignments and tests. And that uses AI technology again. Now, auto-marking of multiple choice tests and exams is already available. I mean, the technology for simple yes, no, multiple option questions um, is already happening. But the excitement is really on what future state AI technology offers us in terms of using the possibilities of natural language processing and natural language classification systems to mark long essays, you know, long written work, not just to assess linguistic dimensions like fluency, vocabulary usage, um, pronunciation, but also to pick up on the context of the sentence, not just the syntax and the subtleties of me meaning to provide highly accurate grading. I mean, that's super exciting to be able to do that. And we're trialing a number of um, new applications at Pearson and working with a number of startups um, to really test out how well this is working and how comfortable teachers will be in relinquishing some of that marking over to an AI, um, literally a computer to do all that testing for them, um, and how confident they feel the grades will be. So, and we've had some really exciting results come back, you know, that teachers are really confident about the future. And whilst accuracy is still an issue, we've still got a long way to go. We're seeing sort of 50% accuracy, compared to human marker. And obviously we want it to be 100% because we want it to be as accurate as a human. And humans are, you know, flawed. I mean, they make mistakes too, um, but we've got some, some way to go, but I think it's a really, really exciting market and will really free up teachers to spend a lot more of their time teaching students and not doing lots and lots of boring marking. Really exciting and hopefully uh, a fantastic solution for all the very overworked uh, teachers and, uh, and and lecturers who, as you say, have so much time taken up with administrative work and and on actually teaching and sharing and imparting the, the knowledge that they're 
they're passionate about. Um, which leads nicely on to actually looking at um, career futures. Um, you mentioned the shocking statistics about, uh, about teachers uh, thinking about uh, quitting, that they had no option um, due to the terrible work-life balance and, uh, and the situation that uh, they've been in through, through COVID. Um, obviously, higher education settings are, are seen as a, an area of uh, a benchmark of personal progress. And if we're able to free up more time and, and provide more facilities for, for online and, and blended learning um, using these AI capabilities, um, then that's also contributing to the, to the economy and, and growing in, in terms of produ productivity, the growing workforce um, and the future of that education process. Um, do you see that uh, higher education can become a, a real driver for, for economic growth? I do. I absolutely do. Um, a university degree is still so highly valued globally, you know, not just in the UK and the US, globally, it still remains really important and young people have aspirations to go to university, something like 50% of people under 30 go to university in the UK. Um, but the cost of a three year undergraduate degree, and it's four years in the States, you know, they have four year degrees, um, and, you know, a two year master degree, now it, it's prohibitive for many people around the world. You know, so if we're really going to be serious about recovery and using um, higher level qualifications for future career success for people, then universities really need to widen their reach. And they have to look at being more adaptable, more flexible, more affordable. You know, students don't look like what they did a decade ago. They're not all entering straight from high school or sixth form college. They are increasingly working people. They're people who've got kids. They're people who've got mortgages to pay. They need courses designed around their busy lives. You know, at the same time, with postgraduate courses like MBAs, we're seeing fewer and fewer corporations paying for these courses. So more students are now having to pay themselves. So for both these groups, they need to earn whilst they learn. Yeah. And how do, you, how do you solve that if you're a university provider? So here enters the world of modular stackable degree programs. So instead of taking a few years out to study, you just take individual modules and you gain credits for them. And you can do that whilst you're working, you know, and you can do that in your own time. And collectively, those modules all and the credits that you gain, they all stack up to a four degree program landing you with a de degree certificate at the end. And the delivery of that degree involves a mix of blended approaches, both face-to-face -face instruction and independent online learning. Now, several universities are already offering these stackable degree programs, and I expect to see more universities joining the club. But, you know, to really help our economy grow and really create the talent pipeline, as well as deal with skill gaps within our workforce, more universities need to be offering short courses, soft skill training programs, workforce upskilling programs, 
as well as more affordable options for the unemployed. Absolutely. That flexibility is, is key. People working, taking care of families, uh, many other priorities um, around um, their lives as, as well as getting an education. But that Absolutely. drive and wanting to further their careers to, um, to contribute to the economy further. Um, it's, uh, it's an area that uh, I'm sure many, many education um, providers will be be looking at and hopefully taking up uh, new initiatives in in this regard as you say the the student of today is very different to today's gone by um, and uh, and again that reflects an evolving workforce um, and and we have to adapt to uh, to, to accommodate and, and to be more flexible around that absolutely I mean you know students end up with so much debt when they go to university that we really do need to find opportunities where a lot more young people can work and uh, you know do their course at the same time. So that flexibility is absolutely critical if we're going to you know really create the talent pipeline as well as meet these skill gaps. We have got so many skill gaps in our workforce globally, not just in the UK but globally. That actually ties in really nicely to another area that I'm keen to discuss with you, um, which is mentoring. Uh, and you've seen firsthand um, how empowering mentoring can be for, for women through your work with women in research. Um, certainly a topic uh, close to my heart uh, as well. Uh, women's pivotal role in the education industry and indeed in the field of research. Um, mm. Can you tell me a bit more about the initiative and, and what you've been involved in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, women in research are a great networking club and I... You know, I encourage all women researchers to, to join. It's just such an incredible resource. But, you know, what, what led me to mentoring and why, why is it needed? I mean, why, why do we need it in the first place? You know, sadly, across the business world, women still remain grossly unrepresented in senior positions with their opportunities to progress thwarted by these you know, unequal power structures between men and women. And the research industry is no different. You know, a survey that women in research did last year with men and women working in the research industry found that income disparities exist between genders, regardless of seniority level, right from junior positions all the way to the top um, leadership roles. The findings also revealed the industry is predominantly female at the junior and mid-level but skews increasingly male as you move up the corporate ladder, right? Yeah. And one of the problems that, you know, that women told us about is that children and family become like an obstacle for many of them in advancing their career, as they don't feel supported by their employers. And that leads to the second problem, women lose confidence. Mm -hmm. And then they don't ask for promotions into more senior management roles. They don't ask for those pay rises. So things just don't change. You know, for me, Rachel, my tough mindedness stood me in good stead and helped me break down some of my barriers in my 25 plus years of working. You know, I didn't have mentoring when I started out. Things like this didn't exist. We had no 30% club, no women in research mentoring schemes. But I feel, you know, women in leadership positions like myself 
have a real responsibility to do everything they can to help other women progress in their careers. You know, because no one else is going to do it. Yeah, let's be <laughs> frank. <laughs> and one way to do that is through mentoring. You know, um, mentoring for me is one key lever that we can activate to help other women gain access to opportunities that they might otherwise miss or be better prepared for opportunities when they come by. Because, you know, what we do is we instill confidence in women. You know, we help them develop their own brand because that's what you've got to do a lot of the times. You've got to create your own brand and you've got to be visible. And we help them do that. You know, that's what mentoring can do, can get that, build that confidence and, and stop a lot of women having this imposter syndrome, you know, when they feel they're just yes. not good enough or they feel like they're a fraud or stop another problem that we get with women where they feel they can't progress until they're absolutely perfect. You know, I can, let me tell you, I know many men who have winged their way and waffled their way and, you know, just gift of the gab their way to leadership roles, not because of any real skill they have, but because they're really good at selling themselves. Um, so we need to be better at doing that as well. And you know, mentoring to me is just about building that confidence in women. And that could be just meeting up with a woman and having a, these days, a virtual coffee, unfortunately, can't yes. meet face to face and just having a chat, you know, tell me about your ambitions, your goals, and, and just help them create a roadmap so that yes. they can achieve those ambitions and goals in their life. Absolutely. Um, I think that's so important. I mean, you picked up on several really important points there. Firstly, how vital building confidence is. Um, I, I've worked as a, a mentor for a, a number of um, women's networks as well. And, you know, through having um, candid conversations, uh, sharing experiences, um, networking and, uh, and introductions and, and finding opportunities. But the, the biggest help um, and the, the area where most feedback comes back is support um, and getting out of the imposter syndrome mindset um, right. and building confidence in abilities, ambition, um, creating that roadmap for for the career uh, and, and how to move forward, even if it simple ways of, of tackling um, particular challenges uh, within the, the daily workplace, whether that's, you know, a, a big presentation or a big meeting and suddenly the, the most experienced of us will, will be racked with doubt. Um, and uh, it, it's how to stop thinking of it from, from that perspective and, uh, and tune out of that. You're so right, Rachel. And you know, you don't have to go on an official mentoring program or scheme like 30% Club or even join uh, Women in Research, although I'd encourage you to do that. You could just reach out to a senior female leader. You know, I, I always say, just go and ask. I mean, the worst thing that, that can happen is they're going to say no, but give it a go. Just try. Um, I mentor a lot of women in what I call organic mentoring. You know, they just women I know at work who see me as somebody that they want to learn from and you know I make it my business to see them regularly we meet up sort of every few months and we'll have a chat about things um, and they might be different things I mean one woman needed help with a 
presentation. She was really anxious about it. And I said, look, this is what I do. You know, I always make sure that I've prepared the night before. And I, you know, I used to record my presentations and watch myself back just to make sure that I was clear. And, you know, it's really squeamish to do that. I mean, it's cringy, isn't it? Having to record yourself and watch it, but it's very effective. Another woman, she just needs confidence in terms of where she wants to be in her life. You know, she's sort of at that stage of motherhood where she's not clear, you know, does she invest in time at home with her children or does she invest in more, getting involved in more projects to raise more visibility at work? And, you know, sometimes it's just helping people think through some of those issues in their head. Um, and I encourage all women to do that. And please don't feel if you don't have an official mentoring scheme at work, that's it, you know, just go and reach out to somebody that you admire and ask them, ask them if they'd be your mentor. And I bet they will, I bet they'll find some time for you. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic tip. Um, obviously, there's you know, various different uh, official schemes. And can I just say one more thing, available. one more thing about that yeah, mentoring. Don't feel limited to asking another woman to be your mentor. You know, if you're a female researcher, you can get a mentor. That's a guy. I mean, you know, men bring great qualities to mentoring as well um, that you can find very helpful. In 30% Club, which is another mentoring scheme that I'm involved in that, that um, I lead on at Pearson, half our mentors are men. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's easier because there's more senior men, in, you know, more men in senior positions, so there's more of them. Um, and so I'd encourage you to go to a man. Basically, go to somebody you admire and they can help you tremendously in your career goals. Absolutely. I think my, my first uh, mentor was was indeed a man and uh, I still hold him up as a, a massive inspiration in, in my career. Um, and I've, I've worked with Purely um, uh, as a mentor for Purely um, uh, Women's Networks, but also through Chartered Institute of Marketing and, uh, and other organisations where there's there's been a real mix there of, yeah. uh, uh, of male and female mentors on offer. I think we've all got um, plenty to share and... Um, uh, and it is about those fundamental confidence building points it's to the conversations, the different ways of thinking, uh, different ways of uh, uh, approaching things so that you get out of your own head. Um, um, so it's it's great to see that work going on. And I think it's it's incredibly important in the research industry. And um, as you mentioned, the 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 growing trend. Um, we're starting to see uh, in financial and professional services, there has been a very similar trend to what you mentioned with uh, predominantly women in the in the junior roles and then it dropping off as it gets to a point of seniority. Mm. Um, we're starting to see that shift um, more and more in financial services and increasingly in, in professional services. Um, so it is happening, obviously it's taking yeah. time, yeah, um, but you know, initiatives like this and, and conversations and, uh, and being very, um, very transparent about it, experiences and uh, and helping people with that that roadmap ahead. Absolutely. As you I think I think the traditional market research industry. I mean, I think some of the more innovative consultancies are, are sort of moving the dial on this. But I think some of the traditional market research agencies have still got a long way to go. Um, I mean, the other issue, of course, which that we haven't touched on is diversity and inclusion more broadly. You don't see many non-white 
um, people in leadership positions in some many of these um, research companies or in the corporate in-house research environment. Again, mm -hmm. it tends to be predominantly white. Um, you know, even, even if you see more women these days, you still don't see that many non-white faces. So, you know, we've still got somewhere to go. Um, we need to tackle why that's happening, you know, yes. because there could be systemic reasons why that's happening and no amount of mentoring is going to change that. Um, so we do really need to sort of do some more real good quality investigation to understand what, what's going on, what, what are the barriers and how we're going to address those barriers and, and bring those barriers down. Yeah, and that's where the research turning into insight comes into, into its own. So hopefully we can use that to, to start driving things forward and, and making a difference. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Oh, thank and you so much, Rachel. I've, I've, I've really found this stimulating and interesting. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great. You know, it's been a, a real pleasure to, to have you here and uh, thanks again for sharing all your expertise, your insights um, and, uh, and the hot topics that, uh, that we need to be keeping on top of and, and, and watching out for. Thank you.